It could, if the results stand up, be one of the most dramatic medical breakthroughs of recent decades. It could transform treatment regimes, save lives and save health services a fortune. Is it a drug? A device? A surgical procedure? No. It's a newfangled intervention called community. What this provisional data appears to show is that when isolated people who have health problems are supported by community groups and volunteers, the number of emergency admissions to hospital falls spectacularly. While across the whole of Somerset, emergency hospitals admissions rose by 29% during the three years of the study. In Frome, the area that we're looking at, they fell by 17%. Julian Abel, a consultant physician in palliative care and lead author of the draft paper, remarks, no other interventions on record have reduced emergency admissions across the population. Frome is a remarkable place, run by an independent town council famous for its democratic innovation. There's a buzz of sociability, a sense of common purpose, and a creative, exciting atmosphere that makes it feel quite different from many English market towns, and for that matter, quite different. From the button-down dreary place I found when I first visited 30 years ago. The Compassionate Frome project was launched in 2013 by Helen Kingston, a GP there. She kept encountering patients who seemed defeated by the medicalization of their lives. Treated as if they were a cluster of symptoms rather than a human being who happened to have health problems. Staff at her practice were stressed and dejected by what she called silo working. So, with the help of the NHS group, Health Connections Mendip, and the town council, her practice set up a directory of agencies and community groups. This let them see where the gaps were, which they then filled with new groups for people with particular conditions. They employed health connectors to help people plan their care, and most interesting, trained voluntary community connectors to help their parent, patients, not parents, find the support they needed. Sometimes this meant handling debt or housing problems. Sometimes joining choirs or lunch clubs or exercise groups or writing workshops or men's sheds where men make and mend things together. The point was to break a familiar cycle of misery. Illness reduces people's ability to socialise, which leads in turn to isolation and loneliness, which then exacerbates illness. In other words... Skipping to the end here. In other words, the evidence strongly suggests that social contact should be on the prescription, as it is in Frome. But here and in other countries, health services have been slow to act on such findings. Helen Kingston, the GP I mentioned, reports that patients who once asked, what are you going to do about my problem, now tell her, this is what I'm thinking of doing next. They are, in other words, no longer a set of symptoms, but people with agency. There we go. Amazing story there from Frome in Somerset. You can't all move there. That's not the point of this sermon today. But it's just an amazing story, isn't it, about the power of connection, the power of community, the power of being drawn closer to other people. And that's reflected primarily in evidence, uh, medical evidence, evidence about increased well-being and health results, which are dramatic, absolutely dramatic. It was published in The Guardian just a few weeks ago. But actually, the power of connection is seen in so many different aspects and parts of our lives. We've been in a series, and we are in a series, where we're looking at the big vision for Trinity Church. And the big vision here is that we want to see the church 
on fire uh, and the city coming alive. So we have a vision, therefore, which is about discovering and living the truth of the gospel. But not only living it and experiencing it for ourselves, but sharing it and seeing the truth of the gospel impacting the city. In other words, if, if, if we just end up in a holy huddle here experiencing and enjoying God and nothing happens outside of here, we haven't actually done a lot. This has to be not just about us, but about people who we meet every day. Everyone's got to be invited into the party. And we've got to take the party to the streets. That's the purpose. That's the hope. That's our mission and our vision. That's the big picture as a church. This is a vision to see the kingdom of God coming in Nottingham as it is in heaven. That's not unique to us, by the way. That big vision should be shared by every single Christian community across the world. That's not news. That's not something we came up with. That that kingdom thing, that was something Jesus came up with. We've put our own language around it uh, on fire. Uh, Perhaps that's because we're so cold here on Sunday mornings that we did that. I don't know. Maybe that was sort of something going on in the subconscious. But that isn't new. That doesn't make us cool or clever. This is the picture. This is the vision that Jesus shared with his disciples and in fact embodied. That is our big story. Now, the question is then, how do we think that's going to happen? And I just want to say to you very simply, the how, the how is simply this. We believe we will see that happen as we follow Jesus. The answer to seeing the church on fire in the city alive is simply following in the footsteps of Jesus. It's no more complicated than that. It is very simple. Now don't hear me saying it's not difficult. It's very difficult at times. We get in the way, but it's simple. We believe that we, we are here and we are being led into, uh, on the journey, on the, on the path of following Jesus. And we want to give Jesus everything, all of our lives. And that means encountering Jesus Not just sort of once a week or once in your life, but every day, every moment of every day, living in an encounter with Jesus. And there, as we encounter him, becoming more like him so that we're enabled to do the things that he did. Now, we've begun to say something, not just about the why, the big vision or the how, which is what I've just talked about, but also about what this might look like. The what so we have a rhythm here that we talk about, and we're going to continue to talk about this. And in fact, we're going to be using this language more and more. And the, the language, the rhythm we are in and want to be in as a church is that each of us is figuring out what it means to come, to serve, to connect, and to give. And we spent a lot of time focusing over the last two years on what it means to, to show up, to come into God's presence together. A lot of what we've done has been based around showing up to gatherings of prayer and worship and that is always going to be part of what makes us who we are. We believe that God moves and, and works powerfully in those spaces. Many of you are already serving in wonderful ways. I mentioned those serving on kids. But this is made possible not by a large staff team, but by people who, who count this church their own, count this community their own, and are already serving it. And I would just encourage you, if, if this is home for you, uh, recognize that by serving in some way because that's what we do right you you know you're brought up to do that as a kid or at least my parents tried that with me you know hey Johnny you know this meal doesn't just show up on the table it doesn't just arrive there somebody makes it and and you've got to play your part in that maybe even you clean it up Uh, you know we all have a role and that's sort of how we see this this is a family it's just family business it's not a show we're putting on for you Uh, and if you're looking for that you're gonna be really disappointed (laughs) this is about as good as it gets So we want to serve. That's part of our rhythm. We also want to give. I mentioned that already, but I just want to call you to that. 
The next two weeks, we're going to be talking about that. But my vision, our vision, amen, our vision for this community is that everyone's 100% engaged. That's where, we're, that's where I want us to be. I want everybody who calls this place home to be, to be serving here. I want everybody to be giving here. I want everybody to be uh, opening their hearts to God in every single way. And that, that means financial giving too. But we're focusing at the moment, not on either of those things, but on connection. And what it means to connect. Because we feel for this season, this is the key place to land. This is, if you like, our seasonal vision. Had the big vision, the big picture. This is the seasonal vision. I don't know how long, but certainly for the next few months, maybe for the next year, we're going to be camping out and looking at and returning to this idea of how we connect with one another and with God. Because connection is powerful. As we saw in Frome in Somerset. (laughs) I thank you. That was for free. So how do we connect? How do we connect with each other? Well, just to recap, we've been looking at what it means to connect as the one. To connect with God in your daily life. Some of you are still wearing your leather bracelets with three knots in them. Can I get an amen? Okay, one, of, one or two of you are. Amazing. And we talked about our daily rhythm, our practice of prayer. We want to uh, not just have prayer meetings once a week or twice a week or whatever, but on our own uh, to be coming into God's presence regularly. That was a few weeks ago. Last week, Will talked about how we connect with a few. A picture of intimacy and relationship, of connection to a couple of people, two or three other people. Creating spaces of authentic relationships in groups, three to five. These are places of transformation and intimacy. But if if you were switched on to that, you will have been asking, you probably left with as many questions as you came with. And one of the key questions might be, how the heck do I get into one of these groups? I don't know anyone. I'm new here and all you've been doing is putting on services. You told me to come along. How do I get from coming along to deep, authentic relationship? It just seems an unbridgeable chasm. And of course, you are right. Or you may be saying, well, (laughs) but I'm going to talk about bridging it today. Or maybe you're saying, well, That's all well and good, but I'm actually not ready for that. I'm not ready for it yet. I I may be, I hope to be in the future, but right now, that's not where I'm at. I can't go there yet. I'm not ready for that. And and can I just say to you, if that's where you're at, that's okay. That is okay. How do we help people who aren't ready and who don't know as many people as they'd like to yet connect? These are good questions. And I want to talk about another way of connecting with one another, we're going to launch today. We're going to look at the Bible, of course. We're going to look at Jesus. That's why we had the reading. But I actually first want to do us to do a little bit of sociology. And I came across this little bit of sociology. At least I think it's sociology. I've never been quite sure what sociology is, but there we go. <laughs> Hopefully sociologists know. <laughs> and this is a theory that describes four different kinds of spaces that humans inhabit. And to be a human is to inhabit these four kinds of spaces. Some of you are looking at the screen quizzically. It's very simple. I'm going to explain it. The first top left corner is described as intimate space. Intimate space is the kind of space that you inhabit where usually only two people are present. It's intimate. Uh, Think of like a dinner table going out for a meal with somebody. Usually in this kind of space, you're less than 18 inches away from somebody. That's the sort of physical description of this kind of space. It's close. 
People in this space know more than just your business. They know your secrets. You might think of a meal with somebody, a romantic meal or a meal with a friend. People in this space are family, even if they're not family. They're they're the people you trust with your deepest and your darkest. For us, we've said that this space is connecting with God as one. Now, we understand some of you are going to have other humans in this space, but we all have God in this space. We're all in this intimate space with God, and we want to figure out what it means to be in this space where we're sharing our secrets, and he's sharing his secrets with us. That's intimate space. Then we have personal space. Personal space is described usually by uh, being a group of two to five people. This is the few that Will talked about last week. Usually you're between 18 inches and four feet from somebody in this space. So say the sociologists. In this space, people know more than just your name. They also know some details about your life, but they probably don't know your secrets. It's made up of friends and peers. And usually in this space, you don't need leadership. It's not somebody who doesn't need to lead it. You're just sort of figuring it out together. This is private. What goes on here stays here. Think of uh, gathering around a a pub table or a coffee table just with a couple of other people. That's this space. Thirdly, we have social space. This is space uh, usually inhabited between 5 and 20 people. There's a distance usually of 4 to 12 feet. Write down, 4 to 12 feet in the margin of your Bible. Don't do that. (laughs) Usually in this space, you might know names of the people there, but you probably don't know their business. It's most conducive for getting to know people. That's key. This space, social space, is most conducive for getting to know people. And it usually needs some hosting. You can't just show up. Somebody needs to sort of vaguely host it. Even if not leading it, it's hosting. And then finally, we have public space. Usually more than 20 people. Distance of over 12 feet between people. Or even when there isn't, there's usually not that much interaction. Often in this space, you'll be facing the front. Some kind of front. And often somebody's in charge. Somebody's leading. Otherwise it doesn't work. Clearly we're in a public space now. Even though we have social environments here. And sometimes there might even be uh, personal environments as well. Primarily public space is about a learning environment. And uh, I, I said a church meeting. Walking down the street in Nottingham might be... An example of that, some space like that. Okay, there's the sociology. Why do I say that? Simply this. You will see that our our hope, not because of the sociologists actually, but our hope is to embody every one of those spaces here. Because we believe that every one of those spaces is required for discipleship, for following Jesus. And remember we said that the how is following Jesus. We want to encounter Jesus, become like him and do the stuff he did. Because we want to see the church on fire and the city alive. And that means we've got to see all of these spaces. We've got to have a place where everyone can experience God, encounter Jesus in every one of these spaces. Now, I asked somebody before the service, Adam, it was a trick question. I reeled him in and then spat him out. I said, which is the most important? And Adam, of course, said intimate space. Because I led him on. Of course, no one of these spaces is more important than the other. You'll have your preference, and I have my preference, by the way. I'm not going to tell you what it is. (laughs) Sometimes your preference changes on season of life or what you're going through at a particular time, or maybe how tired you are, how much sleep you've had, how introverted or extroverted you might be or feel at any given moment. But actually, we need all of these environments, and these environments are interconnected. As we said, you might want to have 
an intimate experience, an intimate relationship with somebody else. But actually that requires some kind of social and personal space as well. We, we need to move between these to be healthy and to experience God as we want to. However, and this is a key point, we have a real deficit of social space in our culture now. And that isn't just the church. You think of how many pubs have closed down around you in the last 10 years, 15 years. What people used to do in social spaces, they now do at home on the internet. You know, we used to go shopping. I mean, like on a high street. And some of you are like, what's a high street? I don't understand. We used to do that. And now we just buy stuff on. We've made that stuff, which used to be social, going down the, the green grocers, having a chat and, you know, making relationships. Now we just do it online. Our culture doesn't inhabit social space in the same way. And actually, I think there's a temptation for the church as well to under, underestimate the importance of its role in creating social space. Now, the problems come in church life, in my experience, when we confuse these spaces. So we go into a space that might, uh, let me just get that last slide up. We go into a space that might actually be uh, sold, if you like, as a social space. Maybe it's a group of sort of five to 20. We might call it a small group, for example. That's what it's told, that's what it's sold as, but what we're expected to do in that space is stuff that normally should happen in a personal space. So you're in a group of sort of 12 people and you're being asked to open up your deepest and your darkest secrets. And it's like, oh my gosh, this just doesn't feel right. Why, when I'm saying this stuff, does it feel like I'm in a car crash? (laughs) Because it's a mixing, there's a blurring of the lines there. I think what we want to see and what we need to see is social space being social space, a place for connection. Personal space being what it is for, doing what it is for. Okay, what's missing at Trinity? What's missing? Nothing is missing. We're the perfect church. (laughs) We're clearly not the perfect church. We will never be the perfect church. If you're looking for the perfect church, please go down the road. There's probably one down there and we are not and never will be it. We're clearly, we're clearly missing social space. Now, we had social space at the beginning because all we had was social space. And as this church has grown, what was social has become sort of public. It's got bigger. Now, we've said all along, um, you guys go and curate, go and create social space, and you have. And there are loads of social spaces. But the bigger this place gets, the harder it is for new people to access that. In fact, it becomes impossible. So we've recognised that what we need to do is, is curate, is to organise some of that social space. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. How are we going to do that? Like you're like, how? that's what you're going to be talking about today. You've done 20 minutes already. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that through meals and interest groups. That's primarily going to be our focus in terms of social space, in terms of connecting. Meals and interest groups. Why? Well, let's take a look at Jesus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. Fun fact, 
He was short. In the original language, we don't know whether that refers to Jesus or to Zacchaeus. So somebody's short. So Zacchaeus <laughs> climbs the tree. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look. Well, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. In other words, he's a tax farmer. His job is to take taxes from people. He works. He's a, he's a, he works basically for the Roman state. And so he's hated by any Jewish person. The, the, the double reason he's hated, not just because he's a figure and a symbol of Roman oppression, but also because he is taking money on the side. Roman taxes would be about 50%. And what Zacchaeus would do was take a little cut. Now he could decide whatever he wanted the cut to be in a given moment. And he would have his taxation enforced at the point of a Roman sword. So for that reason, everybody hated the tax farmers. Everybody would have hated Zacchaeus. And so what Jesus does is so profound to make a beeline for this guy. In fact, the, this guy, the tax collectors, along with the prostitutes, were basically seen as the two lowest rungs of the social strata. And we all have our own social ladder, don't we, and people that we see at the bottom. And for these people at this time, the, the tax collector, and a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus, and prostitutes would have been seen as the lowest of the low back then. And what does Jesus do? Who does Jesus eat with on a regular basis? Tax collectors and prostitutes. And to get the force of this, because actually we don't think in the same way. If you're working for HMRC today, you're welcome. Uh, we certainly don't think in our culture today uh, in the same way as people did back then. And in fact, even, even sort of the sex industry, our culture is so sexualized that our perspective on that has, has, has changed in so many ways as well. But imagine Jesus showing up and picking a group of terrorists and inviting them over for lunch. Or... What about a group of paedophiles and bringing them around his house? That is the force of what Jesus does here. And so it's no surprise that people are even disgusted by his action. And Jesus says this, I must stay at a house today. Now, what we observe throughout the Gospels is that Jesus does this lots and lots. He does lots and lots of eating. He does lots and lots of inviting himself around. In fact, somebody said uh, that what, uh, Jesus, what Jesus does, particularly in, in, or in, in Luke's Gospel, particularly Jesus is either on the way to or on the way from a meal. That's the whole thing. That's pretty much everything he does. Now, when he's talking to religious insiders, he'll preach a sermon. But for most people, and the people to whom Jesus comes, the, the lost sheep of Israel, Jesus will share a meal. So he does a whole load of eating. And that caused people to sit up because of the people that Jesus was eating with. 
Why? Because he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now in every culture, meals have great significance. Less so, I think, in our culture. Certainly less so today than they used to. We used to fast food, just get food on the bounce. You know, we'll go through, drive through and just take it with us wherever we're going because we don't want to be slowed down by something as trivial as eating. But actually in this culture, it's quite the opposite. And meals were were what um, one theologian called boundary markers. In other words, the meal was what defined who was in and who was out. If you've been in Middle Eastern culture, you understand this. That the meal was the place which defined who was in and who was out. But with Jesus, you see him turning this on its head entirely. You know, for Jesus, uh, a meal wasn't a boundary marker. A meal wasn't a way of keeping people out. A meal was a way of including people in who were otherwise outsiders. Jesus turns the whole concept of meals on their head. One theologian said Jesus got himself killed because of who he ate with. Rather than using a meal as a way to keep outsiders away, Jesus used them as a, a way to bring outsiders in to demonstrate the life of the kingdom. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. How did he do it? By sharing food. And so we want to follow in his footsteps. We want to create connection, not just for people who are already in, but for people who are not yet in. And we want to do it through food. We want to do that through sharing meals together because we want to be like Jesus. I said that at the beginning, didn't I? And being like Jesus means employing radical hospitality about bringing outsiders into the center. That's what we want to be about. There's a second reason, as well as the fact Jesus did it, I just want to share really quickly. And it comes in the form of a prophetic word that somebody had. For those who are new, we believe that uh, Jesus is alive and he's still speaking. And he's still directing and shaping Uh, the path that his church are on, both individually but also corporately. Somebody came a while ago and just shared a prophetic word with me as they left and wrote it down for me. And this is what they said. They heard the word, feed the city. They saw a a picture, a vision, if you like, of an egg ready to hatch. They said it was bigger than they initially thought and that as it cracked and hatched, there was food inside. And they heard a voice saying, you eat first, sit and eat together. So you all, that's us, sat together and ate. Then the voice said, this food will be for the feeding of this city. Feed my lambs. Went on to say, this is a staple, it's basic, it's daily bread. It keeps the city alive like a heartbeat. It's also abundance. It's creative, it's extravagant and generous. This is the extravagant banquet and the messy family dinner. This is my gift to you. It's the one thing that unites all people, food. It's my universal language. I will tear down barriers and divisions as people sit at the table together. I will heal unforgiveness. I will dissolve hard-heartedness. I will bind up wounds. This is a gate into my kingdom. They will come and eat and some will come in because they will see me in you. Be ready for them. Eat as a church family and then feed my city. So we want to share food together. And we want to share interests together. My screen is frozen and this one isn't, so just wait a second. 
what these are, what these groups are. They are places of connection. I shared that. It's just really simply, if you're new here or you've been here a while and you're not connected, these interest groups and meals are just going to provide a space for you to meet some other people. They're not small groups. They're not going to be places where we have Bible study. We are hoping that the depth is going to come in these groups of few, a few. And we're not trying to mix these two together. These primarily are going to be places of connection. That doesn't mean they're shallow. They can be real and hearty. Isn't that what gathering around a table does? We've had these from the beginning. We've had dinner at ours from the beginning. Many of you have been to dinner at ours. And they've been hearty times. They've been amazing times. The places of connection. We hope these are going to be places of connection. Secondly, they're going to be places of hospitality. And, and the word hospitality literally in the original or in Greek means the love of a stranger. What happens when, when you love a stranger? What happens when you love a stranger is they become a friend. And we hope that uh, these places are going to be places of hospitality, places where strangers can become friends, where people can be invited and welcomed into the heart of your home or of some place where you're sharing a meal. They're places of hospitality. If you like, they're bridges. They're bridges between uh, a feeling of being outside and a feeling of being inside, a sense of belonging. That's what we hope they'll create. Now, hospitality is, the, is not necessarily the same thing as entertainment. These are not dinner parties. At a dinner party, what you do is you bring out your finest china, don't you? You get it, you know, if you, if you were given it by your great aunt Ethel, she gave you her finest china. It's been in the family for seven generations. You get it out and you, you know, you're really anxious. What's my best meal? Uh, what can I put on? Uh, how is it going to work? And people come in and you know, you've tidied. You've hoovered. The whole place is spotless. And people come in and you, you know, you're just pretending with your uh, person that you're hosting, whether your spouse or somebody else, you're pretending everything's absolutely fine, even though you've had a massive argument just before people arrived. <laughs> this is entertainment, right? You put your best foot forward. There's a clear line between the, the host and the guest. And what hospitality does is it blurs the line between the host and the guest. In a, an environment of hospitality, you show up, you, you, know, you, you put your own coat down and you wander and say, hey, how's it going? Hey, there's a bit of washing up here. Can I do that for you? You just get on with it. Hey, how, what, what, what's needed? Maybe you've even brought food. Maybe you just get on with whatever you see that's needed. Hey, can I just help put the kids to bed? This is faith. <laughs> I'm going to help put your kids to bed while you put your feet up. Amen. We want these to be places of connection and places of hospitality. How are we going to see that happen?